Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Well, gentlemen, we are going to be looking at amazing, one of the most beautiful passages passages of Scripture this morning, John chapters 14 to 17. The Gospel of John is one of the four Gospels, and that made me think, I wonder if Jesus ever said this. Okay, everyone, now listen carefully. I don't want to end up with four different versions of this. We know we've got four Gospels, but they all look at Jesus from a unique perspective but they're, they are uh, complementary. The setting of today's passage is it begins in, with the Last Supper. And if you've seen a petition to go around to replace Da Vinci's uh, painting of the Last Supper with a more modern version of the Last Supper, don't sign it. Da Vinci's portrayal is way better. Now, we are in John chapters 14 to 17. This is where John shares a vivid and moving account of Christ's last days with his closest disciples before his arrest and crucifixion. John is concerned about the fallout of events that are about to take place, specifically how it will affect these men. He seeks to comfort them and to offer guidance. He wants them to be prepared and to be ready. So we see in the first four verses of chapter 14 that he urges trust. He shares a glimpse into the future glory and assures them of their participation in it, just not yet. In the meantime, big challenges are ahead. Work is to be done, and they are the ones who are called to do it. He must continue to prepare them in the short time that he has remaining with them. Now, before we begin, This reminds me that Jesus' mission was twofold. His primary mission was to give his life and sacrifice for sins so that we could be reconciled with God. That was his primary mission. But he had a secondary mission, and we really see it coming out of these chapters, and that is to give his life to a few men by investing his life or pouring his life into them for three years into a small group of men who are going to be the ones that carry this mission forward. It makes you think about the strategy of Christ. Why is this his strategy? And one of the classic books that kind of lays this out is by a guy named Robert Coleman called The Master Plan of Evangelism. So I just want to read a couple quotes from this book. He, He says in his book, Why did Jesus deliberately concentrate his life upon so few people? Had he not come to save the world? The master could have easily had an immediate following of thousands if he wanted them. Why did he not capitalize on his opportunities to enlist a mighty army of believers to take the world by storm? Surely the Son of God could have adopted a more enticing program of mass recruitment. Is it not rather disappointing that the one with all the powers in the universe 
at his command would live and die to save the world, and yet in the end only have a few ragged disciples to show for his labors? It's an interesting thought. But he goes on and he kind of says that why Jesus ended up concentrating on a few people. He says, one cannot transform a world except as individuals in the world are transformed. Individuals cannot be changed as they are molded in the, unless, except as they are molded in the hands of the master. The necessity is apparent not only to select a few men, but to keep the group small enough to be able to work deeply and effectively with them. Then the final quote I want to share this morning is this one. He says, one must decide where he wants his ministry to count. In the momentary applause of popular recognition and the reproduction of his life in a few chosen men who carry on his work after he's gone. Really, it is a question of what generation we are living for. My first ministry assignment in 1997 with the Navigators was at the University of, is at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And when I was there, I led a very small ministry. It was about 50 students. And there was another ministry on campus that had like 800 students. And I always felt like I was kind of in the shadow of this gigantic ministry. And I never felt like what I was doing was making much of a difference. But that changed the day that I met with that leader of that other ministry. We used to meet together um, on a monthly basis to pray for each other, pray for our families, pray for the ministries. And I'll never forget the one time he said to me, he said, Greg, I lead one of the largest campus ministries in the nation, but it is also one of the least fruitful ministries. And that made me think, he said, and he, and he went on and said, for the ministry our size, we ought to be impacting the campus way more than we are. And that kind of helped me put things in perspective. And it made me think of a guy who I discipled around that time, a guy named Jason Reagan. I poured my life into him, and he graduated and became a Navy chaplain. And for the last 20 years, he's been making disciples all over the world as he's gone on with the Navy. And he's reproducing his life over and over again. Jesus' strategy was to invest in a few, not in multitudes. So let's, let's dive into this passage. Read along with me, chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I am going. Thomas speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip then speaks up and says, 
Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Jesus is making it clear to his disciples that he's all about doing the will of the Father. In fact, he says the only way to the Father is through Jesus. The goals are the same. No one can believe in the one and not believe in the other. They have they are in perfect sync and in essence one. In essence one. And you know, as I as I have been reading through these chapters the last couple of weeks, one of the things that really, one of my big takeaways from this passage, this passage and all these chapters, is that Jesus is really emphasizing the importance of doctrine into the disciples' life. He's really giving them doctrine to hold on to before he leaves. And um, so what do I mean by doctrine? Well, an easy way to remember it, and this is kind of a discipleship technique that the navigators use a lot, is we like to make things simple and memorable so you can take them away. So if I'm meeting with somebody and I'm talking to them about doctrine, I might pull out a napkin and I might do something like this. I might write, these, write this down. Um, what is doctrine? What are the most... What are the essential beliefs that all followers of Jesus should agree upon? And this may not be an exhaustive list, but I think it, it does capture the core beliefs. First of all, the deity of Jesus, that he is God. And we're not going to read through all the references next to each of these doctrinal points, but I just want to show you that Jesus is, is really... Um, mentioning these things to his disciples, he's talking about, he's reminding his disciples that he is God. Then we see the doctrine of original sin. In chapter 16, he talks about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. And then we see the doctrine of the cross. I mean, that's where he's headed. He's headed to the cross, and he's reminding the disciples even at this time, that that's where he's going. And then there's the doctrine of the Trinity, an essential doctrine for followers of Jesus. And even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, in these passages of Scripture, the Trinity is all over it. Jesus is talking about the Father, uh, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all throughout these, these passages. The importance of the resurrection. Jesus says, I'm going to, 
that I'm I'm going away, but I, but you'll see me again. Um, the incarnation. He mentions that he was sent from God, from the Father, to to the earth. That's an important doctrine. The doctrine of new creation, that we must be born twice, physically and spiritually. And then the doctrine of eschatology. He mentions his eminent return, and he talks about eternity with God. Isn't that interesting that... In these final hours with his disciples, how much he goes over these important doctrines. But we got to take a pause and take a look at this very, very important verse that probably all of us know. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's important for us to remember that Jesus didn't say that he would show us a way to God, like many other religions. He says, I am the way. He didn't promise to teach us a truth about God. He says, I am, I embody truth. And he didn't offer us secrets to life. Uh, he says, he is the life. Now, many people struggle with what Jesus says here, especially non-believers, because they'll say something to us like this. Isn't Jesus' statement offensively exclusive? I mean, how could he say that? Well, let me remind you, or let me help you think, think about this, that you know you could make an argument that biblical Christianity is the most inclusive, tolerant, Embracing of other cultures, religion on earth. Christianity is the one religion to embrace other cultures and has the most urgency to translate scriptures into those languages. A Christian can keep their native language and culture and follow Jesus in the midst of that. Um, in fact, an early criticism of Christianity by the Romans was the observation that they would take anybody, slaves, free people, uh, rich, poor, men, women, Greek, barbarian, all were accepted, but on the common ground of the truth that Jesus reveals about himself. Isn't that interesting? Does anybody, we can pause here for a second if anybody has any thoughts or comments. Okay, Patrick. You said earlier that if we don't know Jesus, we don't know the Father. And you've kind of touched on it here, too. So this is no doubt a question that Doug Allen would typically ask. Does this, does this mean that our Jewish cousins believe in a different God than we as Christians? I will throw that out to the wisdom of the Torah. <laughs> that's, an, that's an interesting thought. Um, does anybody want to make a comment about that? Oh, well, you talked about good Doug. Doctor. Doug wants to. Oh, do I have the mic here? Come back in two weeks. We'll talk about First John, and that'll be a topic. 
Okay, two things. I was just thinking about that. That statement in itself is an exclusive statement. So they're arguing exclusivity with exclusivity. Am I correct on that, Pat? Uh, the other one to answer Pat's comment, uh, the Jews worship God. But there was some prophecies and there were things in there that said the Messiah was coming. And when it gets to that point, they rejected that particular part of their belief system. They rejected the prophecies of their own belief. But I think they are still trying to worship the same God that we're worshiping. Good thoughts. Well, we'll like, uh, okay, Joe. I think the Jews are partially right. You know, the Shema says that God is one. They don't talk about the Son. They didn't uh, have the Holy Spirit walking with them all the time. We know in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit came upon them and do great works. So they have a piece of it, but they don't have the whole truth. We also know that they rejected Christ. It's true. Okay, there'll be more time for questions and answers. Let's let's move on. Can I ask for a volunteer to read chapter fourteen, verses fifteen to thirty-one? All right, Rex. Thanks. If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of Truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by the, my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and he will come to me and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell you I am going away and I am coming to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer, because the ruler of the world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's leave this place. Thank you, Rex. Uh, so, by the way, this is when they leave the Last Supper, and the, 
as we get into chapter 15, they're walking towards Gethsemane. Uh, radical change was coming for the disciples. Their world was about to be turned upside down. They were about to witness their rabbi, their master, their Lord, die on the cross and all that would follow that. During this time and beyond, they would need to stick to the plan to be unwavering, to continue in the teachings of Jesus. They would need to obey regardless of what was going on around them. Remembering and doing what he taught them would be vital to accomplishing their kingdom work and commission. Carefully note that what, what Jesus says in uh, verse 15. He says, if we love him, we will obey him. Jesus doesn't say if we obey him, he will love us. We can do nothing to earn or maintain a relationship with God. Our obedience merits nothing. But our obedience is essential, is essential affirmation of our love for Jesus. It is by Jesus' obedience that we are saved. And it is by our obedience, compelled by our love for Christ, that we express our gratitude for such a great salvation. So you see the themes of obedience and the Holy Spirit in this section. Um, so he talks about how the Holy Spirit gives us a huge advantage. Have you ever thought about this? Um, he, well, he says that the Holy Spirit is a helper, an advocate, which the word is, is paraclete, the Greek word. And it literally means the one called alongside to render aid and comfort. This um, gives allows every believer to stay in fellowship with God. Now think about this. Imagine, um, think about Moses and the Israelites. What did they do? The Israelites, they followed a pillar of cloud and, and a pillar of fire, you know, when they were wandering in the wilderness. I mean, imagine that. Imagine how, um, you know, disconcerting that, that could be. I mean, uh, you, you buy a house, and you're like, honey, I, we got our house. Look, the pillar's been here two years. I think we're going to be here for a while. And then the next day, we're moving. It's on the move. We're, we got to move to the, the next place. I mean, you literally had to follow this pillar to, to know whether you were in God's will. Um, the disciples, they had Jesus, and but they but Jesus could, could disappear. He could go away from them. But even when Jesus was with them, they would find themselves in trouble. I mean, remember when he was sleeping on the boat, and, and they're in this huge storm, and they, and they, they thought they were going to drown. But they had Jesus right there. Well, the Holy Spirit, my point is just that the Holy Spirit gives us an advantage. Because I know when I read the Old Testament and even, even the Gospels, sometimes I, I envy them. I wish I was there. I wish I'd lived during that time. But the more I think about it, I think I like what we have. Because the Holy Spirit can go with us wherever we go. I mean, the Holy Spirit was with Thomas when he went to India to, to start to share the Gospel there. The, the disciples could scatter in the Holy Spirit. God would be with them wherever they went. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is a very important. Teach it, it says that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things and remind us of God's word. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to live our lives in obedience to God. Uh, the Holy Spirit allows us to have peace in the midst of a troubled world. You know, Jesus said, 
Um, don't let your hearts be troubled. You know, Jesus never promised a trouble-free life, but he did promise that we could have a trouble-free heart. Isn't that interesting? He's, in fact, it says, in this world, you will have trouble. He promises that we're going to have trouble in this world, but that doesn't mean our hearts have to be troubled. And I think that's part of the Holy Spirit can give us a peace that surpasses all understanding, even in the midst of difficult times. I like this quote by uh, Matthew Henry. Love is the root, but obedience is the fruit. So I want to pause here, just if anybody has any questions or comments. Louis? I just like that you brought up verse 26, where it clearly says the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. So I think it's there's two applications for us to be able to teach something that involves the Holy Spirit, someone to be able to receive what we are teaching that involves the Holy Spirit. So again, all the praise, honor, and God. Amen. Anybody else? Okay, could I have a volunteer? I mean, we're going to go into like one of the one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, chapter 15. Could somebody volunteer to read chapter 15, um, verses 1 to 17? Okay, great. Thanks. I am the true vine, and my father is the garden. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You already are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is my Father's. This is to my Father's glory that you will bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. So as we're kind of like looking at these chapters through the lens of Jesus' secondary mission of investing in the few, we see that discipleship flows from relationship. 
And Jesus uses the vine and the branches as an illustration. There's a strong connection. Um, this is why Christ spent over three years with these men, to prepare them. He makes the connection between obedience and love, um, again, speaking in terms of relationship. Um, he promises that they will not be alone and assures them that the events are all, the events that are going to, about to happen are all part of the Father's plan, which he, he himself is obeying. So as he obeys the Father's plan, he desires his disciples to also obey, um, out of love so that they might be prepared. So this reminds, you know, the, the one question I want us to think about is he says, um, abide in me and I will abide in you. What does it mean to abide in Christ? And one of the tools we use with the navigators to help new Christians learn what it means to walk with Christ is this illustration called the wheel. And I know Pastor Joe uses a version of it as well, uh, where Christ is the center. And we try to help people understand that no longer are you the center of your life, but Christ wants to be the center of your life. And when Christ is the center of your life, your life is look, will look at something like this. You will, you will spend time in his word and in worship. You will, uh, you will spend time in prayer. You will uh, fellowship with other believers, and you will witness for him. Um, so this is an easy tool, again, that I often will draw on a napkin as I'm like helping a new Christian grow in faith and show them, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so you see, Christ wants to be the center. And then Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, Christ wants to be the center. But then I started thinking, what are some other practical tips of what it looks like to abide in Jesus? I think the big one is to regularly spend time alone with God. Um, we call it TOG, which, means time, which stands for time alone with God, or some people refer to it as a quiet time. And so I want to encourage you, if, you don't, if you're not spending time alone with God, maybe that's something God would have you to do, is carve out some time where you could just spend alone with him and find a simple method that, that will help you. So um, I will teach students two different method, methods. One is the word pray, and that is in your quiet time, the first thing you do is praise. You praise God for who he is. Then you read the scripture, then you apply, try to find one thing you can apply to your life from the scripture you read, and then you yield your life to God. Now that's one method. Another method is soap, which is start with scripture, then look for observations. Just when you read a passage, write down any observation, anything that you, any observations you can make. And then try to uh, create an application from those ob observations, and then pray. Um, but this is, you know, a simple method. Um, for the last twenty years, I've been reading through the Bible every year, uh, and I plan to do it for the rest of my life, Lord willing. 
but as I read through the Bible, and I, I read through Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs, kind of the one-year Bible kind of format, I, I try to do this. I, under, I underline what stands out to me. And then I go back and I reflect and I try to find one thing that I can like take away for that day. One thing. Sometimes it's a verse and I'll write it down and I'll carry it with me and reflect on it. Um, this is so important um, to spend time alone with God. Okay. Bottom, right underneath. The question, yeah, I'm not allowed to stop looking. The question is, uh, we're talking about abiding or connecting or staying connected to God. But what does that do in our life? What's the, what, what does that produce? It produces love. So how does staying connected to God through all these disciplines, prayer, discipleship, meeting together, how does that, that's something to think about. What kind of love does that produce in our life and how is it expressed, you know? That, that's really the product of what you're talking about right now. The end result is staying connected with his love produces love in our life to share with others. Amen. Thanks for sharing that. Go back. So, um, so I just like, you know, laid out some basic spiritual disciplines that we can, that we can practice. And obviously the key one is spending time alone with God. But then there's strengthening your prayer life. Um, there's um, committing to an in-depth Bible study, like this one. Um, memorizing scripture. Um, and sometimes that, that's a hard discipline. But if you could just try to memorize one verse a week, um, imagine how God could use that in your life. Pray for opportunities to share your faith. Um, join a community group. And then don't just become a church member. But serve. Make it a point to find a place where you can serve, even if it's just one hour a week doing something. Um, get get involved. Uh, I don't know if anybody else wants to uh, make any comments here or questions. Patrick? It is interesting how Jesus uh, uses one of his I am statements talking about he is the true vine. And to me, that, that points to an analog in the Old Testament, the tree of life in Genesis. Because when Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden, there is angels with flaming swords at the end of Genesis chapter 3 who guard them from getting into the tree of life. And then the tree of life kind of disappears from Scripture until you get to Revelation. It appears, I think, with the message to the church in Ephesus, and then the very last chapter. But here, we have the analog that if we abide in Christ, and he is the true vine, we are not cut off. We have, in essence, that tree of life, or fruit, that will keep us eternally Excellent thought. Um, Ed, Ed has another question. You, you mentioned one hour a week, right? If you volunteer one hour a week. Ironically, we still need a few drivers for one Saturday, one Saturday a month, about three hours, so that gives you 45 minutes a week. 
So if you want to, if you want to help drive or deliver food to the needy, see me after the meeting. Sounds good. Oh, thanks for mentioning that opportunity. Okay, well let's move on. We're gonna uh, we're gonna get into some a really interesting discussion, especially in light of the political environment that we're in. Um, so if I could have a volunteer read chapter fifteen, verses eighteen. Um, I think we'll just go eighteen to twenty-five. Uh, for the sake of time. So, I got it. Okay, great. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. Okay, once again, tough times are ahead for the disciples. So Jesus speaks to them in terms of being hated um, and being persecuted. Just as the world pushed back on Jesus, Jesus is saying, they're going to push back on you. Um, this is why the obedience is so vital. But to help them, Jesus presented them with a kingdom perspective of their chosenness. Um, being chosen out of this world to bless the world. Understanding this would enable them to endure and to frame their ministry in a different light, as it will to us today. I want to um, remind you of something I believe the Bible teaches, which is called kingdom, kingdom theology. Um, that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, and then there's the kingdom of God. Sometimes we forget this. Um, and um, one can make a strong case um, that these two kingdoms were very separate um, up until the time of Constantine. Um, now, what I mean is it's, it's very difficult to find any evidence that the church changed one political policy during that time, but countless lives were transformed under the Roman system. So it's like this: the, the kingdoms were very distinct. Um, uh, let me let me just talk a little bit about where Jesus mentions the two kingdoms. Here, here's a great one: My kingdom is not of this world. If if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And then in Colossians, the Apostle Paul talks about how we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, which would be the kingdom of this world, into the kingdom of the Son, whom he loves, and whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And there are all kinds of verses that talk about the world. Um, in John seventeen sixteen, Jesus prays, They are not of this world even as I am not of it. Um, do not love the world or anything in the world, John would write later on. 
And then in James, Jesus' brother says, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. So these two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world is sinful where the kingdom of God is redeemed. The kingdom of this world is under Satan's rule where the kingdom of God, God rules. There's a temporal kingdom, the kingdom of this world, and then there's an eternal kingdom. There's a man-centered kingdom, and there's a God-centered kingdom. There's a kingdom where there's much, a lot of strife, and then there's a kingdom where there's much peace. Um, but I think this is interesting because here's what happened, I believe, in 300 A.D. when Constantine became a believer. The two kingdoms became, began to overlap. Um, I'll call it the overlap. Um, now, is the overlap good? I don't know. Depends. Um, it seems like it would be. But um, today, you know, today we could draw these two kings. You could almost do this with nations. If you live in China and you're a believer, the kingdoms look like this. If you live in America, it looks like this. Now, um, I'm probably going to open up a can of worms here, but my goal is just to get you to think about these two kingdoms. What is scriptural? What's not scriptural? One of the dangers of living in the overlap is the temptation to put way too much weight in how Christians are changing government policies. And then if things don't go our way, we can blame God or, or get discouraged. Um, you know, one could argue that the gospel displays its power and spreads greatly under governments that oppress believers. Um, yes, we should vote and promote the best politicians, but let's not get discouraged or distracted from the real work of transforming lives one at a time through the transforming power of the gospel. I think that sometimes as Christians, we get stuck in the overlap, and we find ourselves greatly discouraged. Okay, I know some people want to make some. Let's go with Bill. I don't want to cause too many ripples, but the problem is that if you make too big a distinction between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, you begin to believe you have absolutely no responsibility at all for what happens in the kingdom of the world, or be isolated from it, separated from it, and it becomes our duty to preach Jesus. But we no longer pray for what's happening in the world. And that's what I see happening in the church today. I mean, I don't know any pastors that are actually having intercessory prayer for the world. It's like, it's not our business. Our business is to promote the kingdom of God, which is totally separate from the kingdom of this world. And the reason that's so important to me is because I get up every morning, the Lord wakes me up to pray for the kingdom of the world within this nation and in, within, within the world. And it's been two years that he's been waking me up. And in that time, I missed three days. Two days because I had a widow-maker heart attack and I was in the hospital. And they wouldn't even let me sit up. And I had two heart attacks of that kind last in 2019, and the second time, Lord, happened at 7 o'clock in the morning. 
and I was supposed to be substituting. I was supposed to be heading the prayer meeting with her call on Friday. So I was supposed to be on at 3 o'clock in the morning on Friday. And I called a few people at 11.30, but they let me sit up at 9 o'clock, and my wife had already brought my computer, so I was able to facilitate from the hospital bed at 3 o'clock in the morning because I asked some people if they could substitute for me because I was still awake at 11.30. I was still in pain, some pain. And yet at 2.30, I was still wide awake and facilitating. So for me, the kingdom of this world is vitally important to Jesus Christ. He wants us to intercede on behalf of it. He wants us to be involved with it. He wants us to take. He said the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And the gates of hell is the authority of the enemy within this world, the kingdom of the world. And Satan offered Jesus the kingdom of this world if you just bow down. And Jesus said no. And we say no. We won't bow down to the kingdom of this world, but to say that we can ignore it because our kingdom isn't of this world, is to miss Jesus' heart for the world. Good words. Yeah. Praise God for you. Thank you for your heart for prayer. Here first. One of the things I've prayed before and after the election is whoever took the leadership role of our country to pray for them because we need to be obedient to who the Lord sets up. But the other thing we need to do, if we really trust everything that the Lord's telling us this morning, we're going to be patient with that leader regardless of what strike. And let's see what the Lord's going to do with him. And let's be patient with what happens, like he's patient with us. That's another prayer that I pray. We have to trust his timing. He's in charge, not us. And he'll do whatever he wants with who's ever leading our country. And I think the more I believe that, the more I can actually pray genuinely for our leaders that he's put in position this year. I, and it's a struggle for me, but I'm getting better at it because I trust him more now than my own my own will. Okay. Patrick. Great. <clears throat> you, Joe, and I, and others here have been to India where you don't have the overlap. And the church thrives there. It grows. We are placed in this country now where there is an overlap. God has placed us here. The problem isn't necessarily the overlap. It is who is influencing who. Is the kingdom of God influencing the wider culture? Or is it surrendering to the wider culture? And the problem that we have in the United States and much of the West is that the church tries to accommodate and it tries to make peace with whatever the issue du jour is. I mean, you can point to the sexual revolution of the 60s and anything else you want, but the church doesn't hold firm to the gospel. And whether there's an overlap or not is up because God placed us here and he placed other saints in other places where there isn't. It's are we willing to risk condemnation by the world? Good thoughts. I knew I was going to open up a can of worms with this one. But we need to think about this. This is important. Just a short burn. <laughs> uh, you increase the overlap, 
this is where you get along. I just overlap. You don't increase the overlap. Hold, hold the mic closer. closer. You don't increase the overlap by having um, legislation. Or, uh, you know, we learned that from the history of the Jewish people. Laws don't do it. The only way you increase the overlap is by person after person. If we get enough believers and the believers become decision makers, that's how we increase the overlap. We don't do it by advocating legislation to, you know, mm-hmm. Good thoughts. Louis? I think Jesus spoke directly about there's just a couple of verses. It's in Luke chapter 17. It says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So I think it's important that we keep our eyes and our gaze focused and fixed on the side. Yeah, I mean, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And the, some of the dialogue is, is the world changing us, or are we changing the world? Um, that's what I pray for my kids as they're in high, uh, public high school is, man, don't let them be changed by the world, but help them be change the world around them. Uh, that's the challenge. Yeah. You know, I, I struggle with even that diagram because, guys, this is two views that are competing for our mind. The one on the right is right here in verse 14, 30, and 16, at the end of 16. That's the ruler of the world. That's Satan. So this isn't put together. The Bible says that we have competing worldviews. One is run by Satan, one is run by God. I guess my thought is I'm on for a different approach. Good. Well, like I said, the overlap, is it good or bad? I don't, you know, I mean, you know, you can make a strong argument that um, countries that live like this, those the believers there are thriving, they're, they're the ones on their knees praying that lives are being changed. Um, but in, in, in America, we get, our, we, get, we get comfortable. How much of, how many of our churches have adopted things of this world instead of sticking to Scripture it's, and the things of God. And that's a real dangerous place to live. Well, I'm running out of time, and I want to get to the Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, so I'm just going to skip this next section. But again, he goes back to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to just mention this whole concept for us today of spiritual breathing. Um what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? How, how do we as believers stay connected to God? Well, I think our default setting is to live a very self-directed life. Uh, if that little chair represents kind of the throne of your life, the decision-making, the S represents self, and then the cross represents Christ, often we find ourselves living just like that. Christ is in our life, but he's like in the passenger seat. He's not taking the steering wheel. We're in control. That's the default setting of the, the sinful heart, um, even for believers. Um, so what we need to learn to do is what I will call spiritual breathing. 
And that is just like we are all breathing right here to stay alive, we need to practice spiritual breathing to stay spiritually alive. Exhaling our sin, confessing our known sin to God on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, not just once a day, but all throughout the day, exhaling our sin to God, and then inhaling, uh, yielding our lives back to God, um, then we will live a more fruitful and abundant life. Not a perfect life, um, but Christ will be on the throne of our life. Self is yielding to Christ, and interests are directed by Christ, resulting in harmony with God's plan. Um, that's how the Spirit wants to work in our lives today. Now, um, to, to bring us to a close, I want us to read this final chapter. Um, it's one of the greatest prayers ever prayed. Um, it's in chapter 17. And actually, you know, all of us know the Lord's Prayer, right? But have you ever thought about that, the Lord's Prayer? Um, what does the Lord's Prayer say? Uh, how does it go? It says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lead us not into temptation. Well, wait a second. Lead us not, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us. I mean, did Jesus need to pray that? Did, did, you know, um, really, my, my point is, and just take it as a comment, I think John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. I think... The Lord's, what we call the Lord's Prayer is a disciple's prayer. That's my point. So let's read this great chapter. Who could volunteer to read it? And then we'll make some closing comments, and then I'll take questions. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. It's a perfect... Um, not that we're being, none of the members of the Trinity were ever selfish. They're always deferring to the other. And he's saying, that's what I want the church to look like. That's what believers should be like. A divided church cannot witness to the love of God. Um, it can't demonstrate the obedience of the Father. It, it, and so that's one of the things. And, and isn't it interesting that even during this pandemic that we're in, that the enemy wants to divide the church. Should I wear a mask? Or should I not wear a mask? Do I need to wear a mask? Do I need to, is this a, is this virus really as deadly as I think it is? Or is it, or is it really just, you know, this is the normal amount of people that die given it during the year. You know, we're just counting, you know, 
and there's all kinds of like beliefs and philosophies and, and there's division and and it's just like the enemy wanted to buy over a simple thing that is something as simple as a mask that not two years ago would have dreamed we'd be sitting here and, and having these kind of issues and discussions. Isn't that crazy? The enemy wants to divide us. God wants to unify us. So my my prayer and encouragement to you is to do whatever you can to unify. Accept the weaker brother. If 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 you have one opinion and you, you you know, respect the person with a different opinion, especially believers. Because we need to stay unified if we're really going to make an impact in this world in with God. Any closing comments or questions? Let's go Joe here. Joe. We'll go Joe. Joe one, Joe two. I forget to bring out in reference to the Lord's Prayer. In context, because remember what it starts off for. The disciples are asking Jesus to pray. Let's pray in this manner. So the Lord's Prayer is like the shadow of praying. It's a format where he the layout. How we should pray or the prayer we should pray on. It is it is valuable. It's very okay, yeah, Joe. Uh, years ago, um CEO of the bank and I went to New York City to meet the analysts. The analysts were talking to him and well, how how do things run? You know, you're here in New York and headquarters that time in Texas. And he said, "Well, don't you understand? Wherever I am, that's where headquarters." Right. So when Jesus sends the disciples out to Matthew, he says this to them: Matthew, can so he sends the twelve out and says, "Go." So go now uh, among the, don't go to the Gentiles and the no town Samaritans, but go rather to the sheep of Israel and proclaim as you are going the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is heaven. But he is what they're telling you. Jesus is coming. So the kingdom is here that kingdom him. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful uh, that we do have the Bible as capital T truth. And it, it does unite us. And when it doesn't, there's an issue. And I just pray that we examine our hearts and that, as Romans 12 says, we're transformed by the way we think. And Lord, I'm just so grateful for Greg and his preparation and all of his background that he brings to the teaching. It's just an amazing hour every Saturday we come here to be able to sit and absorb your truth and allow it to impact how we live. Thank you for all you bless us this this week, and I just pray that we go for with the knowledge that you are with us and that you love us, and we can love our others through that. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, and remember... On your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.